so tonight we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from James. Don't worry, we'll be back next. We meet next week. Yes, we meet next week uh, for James three. Um, and tonight we're going to talk a little bit. So it'll look a little bit different. I'm going to do it. Uh, this might be just a, a little bit of Brian's random thoughts with some Bible verses thrown in there occasionally, which is really fun. Uh, but tonight we look a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be talking about this idea or this word of revival. So we just read in the passage of Psalm 85 uh, that where they say, Lord, will you revive us again? Lord, will you revive us again? And so that's a word, revival, that's been uh, thrown around in, in churches and ministries and pulpits everywhere. There's been hundreds, if not thousands, of songs written about it, uh, a thousand sermons preached about it. Um, and if you've been on TikTok or Twitter or Instagram recently, maybe you've read some of those Christian blogs, whatever they are, those websites, you've heard about what's been happening in Asbury University the last couple of weeks. Uh, maybe some of you went to experience that for yourself. I know some students who went. I know some of our staff at Fellowship went to experience that. Uh, there's many pastors and bloggers who are writing about it. What took place at this small, kind of insignificant, private Methodist school in the middle of Wilmore, Kentucky, a, a town of about 6,000 people, very small, but it seems to be something significant for God happening there. And so many uh, college ministries and even students uh, are even being affected by what's happening in Wilmore, Kentucky. They're beginning to see it happen in their own campuses, in their own churches, in their own ministries. God is pouring out um, some big things on his people. And for those of y'all who are new to what took place, maybe you've been out of the Christian bubble, you didn't hear about what was happening, I can give you a brief, a brief synopsis of what has taken place. On Wednesday, February 8th, students at Asbury University went to attend their weekly student chapel. And so student chapels at Asbury, there's three of them a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. They aren't mandatory, but you have to go to a certain amount of chapels per semester to not pretty much get kicked out of Asbury. And so usually it's just a normal chapel service, a normal Wednesday morning. Uh, the students, they ushered into Hughes Auditorium, which is really funny. That's my last name. Uh, that's when I saw that, I was like, that's interesting. Uh, they expected it to just be like any other Wednesday, any other chapel. Usually most people don't wanna be, I went to a private school my freshman year of college and I transferred, and even me, and I was studying to be a pastor and I was like, I don't really even know if I wanna go to chapel this Wednesday morning. Um, but uh, they went through their normal chapel service with worship and teaching and singing. Uh, and after the normal benediction, benediction means kind of the, the closing words, the send off. Uh, instead of leaving, many students decided to stay, to go back in to the auditorium where they would, where they would pray. And they didn't want to leave, so they didn't. And they continued. And so students kept praying and worshiping with one another. They began to confess their sin together. They began to read scripture aloud. Um, and this, this continued nonstop for over two weeks, 24-7, two weeks, until Asbury concluded it, technically concluded it last Thursday, where they said, uh, we're not doing this anymore. Y'all can go to other churches in the city and they can offer you some venues to do it. Um, but for really 24-7, for 15 days, people from all over the country they came to that little auditorium, only fit about 500 people in there, um, and many of which had to wait for hours just to get into the doors, just to walk into Hughes Auditorium uh, to get a taste of what exactly was happening. And what they experienced is what we would often call the term revival. 
an experience of the manifold kind of presence of God's spirit and power at work in his people in such an evident way that those people don't want to leave. They want to stay. They want to experience more of it. And so from that little auditorium in Wilmore, Kentucky, little echoes of that revival begin to permeate out, kind of like a ripple effect in water to other campuses and ministries around the country. And so as I reflected on uh, this moment in time, this what's going on there um, and what's happening on this little campus, I began to feel tugged by the Spirit last week of maybe we need to go a different route this, this Monday. Uh, maybe we need to take a different route instead of going on in James 3. Um, and so I felt a tug to really ask this simple question. There's really going to be a lot of questions, but the simple overarching question is, why can't revival happen in us? And so why can't it happen in us? But if, but if I'm honest, my first thought when I heard about what was happening in Asbury was more doubt, pessimism, maybe a little bit critical of it, of, of, uh, of uh, just a little bit of doubt in my heart. But what, if, but what if instead of criticism, we were marked by enthusiasm for it? And so instead of criti being critical, being marked by criticism, would we be a people of enthusiasm, of wanting to see what God is doing there happen in each and every one of us? Um, but also this future outpouring of God's spirit. Because revival is something God's people have been experiencing, praying for, and waiting for since the very beginning of God's people. This isn't a new phenomenon with our specific culture and generation. This has been happening since the beginning. And so tonight, my hope is to invite each of us uh, myself included, to begin to pray for our own personal revival in our walks with Jesus. And if it so happens to flow out from us into our campus, maybe this ministry, other ministries, our, our city, then so be it. If not, then so be it. Um, and the reality is, is I'm, I'm, I hope tonight you don't hear me trying to come up here and kind of take advantage of a hot topic that's going on in our culture and saying, let's pounce on that and talk about it. Uh, or you don't feel me kind of come up here and try to start, manipulate this revival, quote unquote, in college life. That's not my heart. That's not my intention, so don't, I hope you don't feel that. But what if Jesus wants to use us or use what's happening really just a couple hundred miles away to call us, each of us, into a deeper communion with him? Each of us into our own personal, maybe even corporate revival um, together. That's the question I'm asking. And so before we jump into our time tonight, uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll dig in. But God, thank you for your word, that you are a God who speaks. You say in your word, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? Is it not like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? You say your word never returns back to you void. It always accomplishes that which you send it out to accomplish. And so, Father, as we study your word, would you speak? Holy Spirit, would you move with great power in us? And Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? What we are not, would you make us? All for the sake of your glorious Son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And so again, we're going to be in Psalm 85. We're going to be jumping over a little bit. Uh, we're going to be going a little bit in Acts, maybe a little bit in uh, Nehemiah. Uh, we're going to see where the Spirit takes us. But we'll be mainly in, in Psalm 85. Uh, and Cecily just read this passage for us, beginning in verse 6. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can turn there. Um, and when you get there, say, I got it, or I'm here, or I'm ready, 
whatever the word would be. Technically, I think it's on the screen. Oh, amen. So we're good anyways. Uh, but here we go. This is the, the text. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. And so tonight's talk is going to break down really into three questions. Uh, what is revival? Let's define it. Let's bring some clarity on it. Uh, why do we pray for revival? Why should it be something that we long for? And then the last question will be, how do we prepare for revival? How do we prepare for it? Those are the questions that I'm going to be addressing kind of in these next 20 or so minutes uh, as we journey through Scripture together. But before we jump into these questions, I feel like there needs to be a few caveats that need to be shared as we jump into this topic of revival so we can, we can start on level playing field tonight. So I'm going to jump through a, a, a few quick maybe sub-points to tonight's talk. The first one will be this. Revival, it cannot be manufactured. So revival cannot be manufactured. So revival, it's merely a word that we use to express something that God is doing. And there's nothing we can do to make it happen. Jesus made it clear in John 3, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says the wind blows whatever it wishes. We don't know when it's coming or when it's going. We just, it just comes upon us. So if the spirit or the wind blows, he's going to blow wherever he will. So there's nothing we can do to manipulate it. So don't think tonight this talk is some kind of visionary, awesome, let's get us rallied together and kind of bring our own revival here in college life. That's not what I'm hoping to do. That's not ultimately how God works either. So that's the first thing. Secondly, revival doesn't have to be some big, profound corporate experience. Revival can be personal. And honestly, it usually begins with one person. It usually begins with one person experiencing the presence and power of God that begins to multiply or permeate into those around them. I can think of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip leaves the revival that's actually happening in Samaria, to, where in the Spirit says he leads him to the Ethiopian eunuch, leads him to Christ, sends that man out on his way. And many believe in church history that at Ethiopia, the, their expression of Christianity is actually the oldest expression of Christianity in the world. It's been going on for, over two, for almost 2,000 years, but it started with one man. So that's the second thing. Lastly, and most importantly, revival is not the end goal. More of Jesus is. So the revival, the revival itself is not the end goal. More of Jesus is. So we don't have revival for revival's sake. We don't have, uh, we don't have to come begging from, for some special movement uh, of God for the sake of the movement but because we want to long, while well, we long to know, love, and treasure Jesus more. So that's why we would want revival is because we want to know Jesus more. And so revival is about people experiencing Jesus in a, in a distinct way, though, maybe a more palpable way. That's what we want more of, not revival itself. And as I think, as we journey through our time tonight, uh, you're going to see a couple of quotes from Stacey Tafal. She wrote an article last week. She went to Asbury, Wilmore, to experience the Asbury Revival. And she wrote an article for Fellowship. You can read that on the website. Uh, but this is what she said. I think I'll have it on the screen. Let's go. Uh, she says this, I hope that you realize that knowing and loving Jesus is far easier than we make it out to be. And that revival is actually more accessible than we ever imagined. And so, with those three caveats in mind, those three kind of sub-points, let's jump into our first question with what is revival? So what do we mean when we say the word revival? I want to bring clarity because oftentimes this word, like I said, it is thrown out in Christendom, Western Christendom of, 
um, anything big or anything profound or any kind of special movement or whatever it is, uh, I want us to have clarity on what uh, I believe the Bible teaches about this idea of uh, revival. And so if there's a simple definition, here's my simple definition. Uh, Revival is a uh, extraordinary encounter with God's presence and power through ordinary means. Revival is an extraordinary encounter with God's presence and power through ordinary means. So it's where the tangible and palpable presence of God and His Spirit is at work in a people. But though this definition, it might be simple, it might be an oversimplification, some people would say, I think it helps us to better understand sometimes this overused word or this uh, underdefined word in our current cultural moment. Uh, Pastor Ray Ortland, he has a quote. It'll be on the screen. He's, he defines it this way in his book on revival. He says this, Revival is the season of the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. It is the normal ministry of the gospel, not something eccentric or even something different from what the church is always charged to do. But what sets revival apart is simply that our usual efforts greatly accelerate in their spiritual effects. God hits the fast forward button. So in other words, God, he presses this fast forward button on our ordinary and regular efforts. There's no special production. There's no bells and whistles. There's no celebrity preacher delivering some mouth-watering sermon. There's nothing special about it. There's no hype behind it. It's just ordinary means, but Jesus' spirit begins to outpour on a powerful way. That's what we mean by the term revival. There's a man named Tom McCall. He's actually a professor, a seminary professor at Asbury Seminary, which is, actually, which is right across the street from Asbury University. Um, and he uh, has actually been writing and praying on revival for a long time. Um, he's been at Asbury for decades. But he has a quote of his experience with this Asbury revival this past week when he wrote about it. But I think it's going to help us understand maybe a little bit more clarity what this definition is. But this is what he has to say. I don't think it'll be on the screen, but I'll read it for you. But this is what he says. As an analytic theologian, I am weary of hype and very weary of manipulation. I come from a background, in particular, revivalist segment of the Methodist holiness tradition. That's irrelevant, but that's the background he comes from. Uh, Where I've seen efforts to manufacture revivals and movements of the Spirit that were sometimes not only hollow, but actually harmful. So I do not want anything to do with that. And the truth be told, though, this Asbury is nothing like that. There's no pressure, there's no hype, there's no manipulation, manipulation, there's no high-pitched emotional fervor. To the contrary, it's actually pretty calm and serene. There's a mix of hope and joy and peace and indescribably strong and indeed almost palpable, a vivid and incredibly powerful sense of shalom. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is undeniably powerful, but he's also very gentle. So there's, he literally says there's no pressure, there's no manipulation, there's no hype, but there's hope there's joy. There's this vivid sense of shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace. It actually means more of a wholeness with God. And so uh, there's another article that I read on the, on the Gospel Coalition about Asbury, about a man. He actually wrote about his step-by-step, hour-by-hour experience with uh, 
what he encountered at Asbury. But one point in his article, he's talking about a quick conversation. So he's in, he waited for a couple hours outside. He got inside, he's sitting down. The service is kind of going on around him. There's people having conversations. Some people are praying. There's people up front worshiping. Uh, There's a band up front playing very simply. Um, But he begins to have a conversation with this couple from Ohio. Who, say, who they say, we actually come from a more charismatic background. So charismatic, uh, Pentecostal background, more uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, kind of prophetic background. Um, and they, they said they've been to many kind of prophetic conferences, uh, but they had never experienced something as powerful as Asbury before. But here's their exact words of this couple. This uh, couple, they say this, this was just as powerful, just as engaging as all those other conferences, but much less sensational. In other words, it's just more simple, but it's just as powerful. And so the truth is, we see revival all over the scriptures. Um, We'll take a journey through a couple of them. Each time we we see some powerful move of God, it's really built around prayer and scripture. Uh, Let's think about Nehemiah and Ezra. Uh, The temple of God's people had been destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem had been ransacked by the Babylonians. They had been sent off to captivity. Um, And uh, for over 200 years, they had been living in in, in captivity. Uh, The people, they said, as they moved to Babylon, they began to embrace Babylon's culture, their their religion. They would call it the Bells of Babylon. They began to embrace it. And in the text, over and over, say, they forgot the Lord their God. So they forgot the Lord their God. This is, that's really just a normal rhythm of the Old Testament. God reveals himself in a mighty way. People, people come to know, love, and trust him. Uh, they begin to grow, experience life with him. And then some kind of tragedy happens. They begin to forget God. They become apathetic towards him. He sends them off. Uh, they forget. Uh, he reveals himself again in a powerful way. They repent, and then they come back to God. That's kind of the, the theme of the Old Testament. Uh, but in a... In the midst of this Babylonian captivity, God raises up a couple of people, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so uh, he rose up Nehemiah in the midst of their slavery and their captivity. And what we learn about Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, is he begins to see the, the, Israel, the Israeli people living in their sin and their, uh, how they've forsaken God, how, how Jerusalem had been destroyed. And he's now living far away from Jerusalem. Um, and it says he begins to weep and fast and pray for God to return his favor on, his, on Israel again, to send them back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. And it says God answered his prayers. But not, but not just Nehemiah. The, Nehemiah, he's kind of the visionary leader. But then God also raised up another man named Ezra. He was the priest. Uh, so he raises up Ezra. Ezra actually goes about 20 years before Nehemiah to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And then Nehemiah comes, and it says that they're sent back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the city, but that's not all that takes place. Um, it says that after the city was rebuilt, in Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah has the people come together, and, then, and he asks Ezra the priest to read the scriptures and explain them to Israel. So all the people, they gather in the center of Jerusalem. Ezra stands up. He, de- he, he begins to walk through the Old Testament law. And it says he explained it to them, what we get the term of sermon from. It's just merely explaining the text. Uh, Ezra begins to do that. But as he begins to do that, revival begins to break out. And so it says in Nehemiah 8 9, you'll see it on the screen. It says, for all the people wept 
as they heard the, war, the word of the law. But not just that. It says the people later on in chapter 8 began to rejoice. They began to experience this peace, this shalom among the people. And it says that they began to obey the God that they had forgotten. So they began to obey the God that had forgotten. And then in chapter 9... The revival continues, and they begin to confess their sin verbally, out loud to one another. And then they rededicate, or they reorient their hearts back to God. They, they kind of declare their allegiance to, to God, Yahweh, um, promising to follow Him uh, as they move forward. And the reality is there's really nothing spectacular about Nehemiah, chapter 8 and 9. There was, it was just sin around, it was centered around a devotion to pray, to pray big prayers, to believe God's word, that, he, that God is who he says he is. There was no bells, no whistles, just weeping, fasting, and confession. And God showed up in a big, powerful way, and his spirit began to move in on his people personally. Or you can think of uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 34, Josiah. He becomes king of, of Judah at 16 years old. Just imagine that. And at 16 years old, so... Israel at this time, or Judah, had experienced a lot of bad kings in a row. So as you read First and Second Chronicles, you'll see it's like, and then so-and-so became king, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And then you'll every once in a while you'll see, well, there, there was this king who did do right in the eyes of the Lord, who followed Yahweh. But at this time in Second Chronicles 34, they had multiple kings in a row who had forsaken God. Josiah steps onto the throne. What's so crazy is that it says that Israel, uh, they were digging in the temple one day and they found the law of the Lord, the Bible that they had lost for generations. They found it and they bring it to Josiah and Josiah says, he actually rips his clothes and he repents and then he calls all of Israel together and they begin to read through the law. And the same thing happens. The, as they hear the law of the Lord, the people rededicate their allegiance back to Yahweh and they begin to follow him. And that's honestly almost how the, how the Old Testament ends. Second Chronicles is the Hebrew last book of the, of the Old Testament. Um, so those are a couple of, of, of experiences of revival that we have in Scripture. But what's there, there seems to be a pattern in these, these expressions of revival in the Old Testament. And maybe we'll even see them in the New um, and I've come up with this pattern. I didn't come up with this one on my own. It's kind of a, a conglomerate of a, of a couple of guys, Martin Lloyd-Jones and J.I. Packer. They wrote on Revival, uh, a couple of old uh, pastors. But this is what they say. So here it is. First thing, God comes down. So in other words, there's an awareness of God's palpable presence. God comes down on his people. Secondly, God's word pierces. There's a responsiveness to the truth of Scripture in a palpable way. Thirdly, prayer is emphasized. So as you look through the revivals of Scripture, and even the revivals throughout the history of the church, each one of them is marked by prayer before, during, and even after them. In prayer, it's marked by an earnest desire to know God, an earnest seeking of God's presence, just as Psalm 85 reveals. So the prayer is emphasized. Fourthly, man's sin is exposed and seen. Man's sin is exposed and seen. There's a sensitivity. There's an awareness in the people of their own sin. Their consciences are hit with the truth of their need to repent and cling to God's mercy and grace. There is both uh, the lost, so those who don't know Jesus or know God coming to know him maybe for the first time, but also there's nominal Christians or stagnant Christians who also begin to recognize or have their own sin revealed 
and they begin to repent and confess their own needs. So it's not just the lost, it's also uh, Christians as well. They see their sin exposed. Fifthly, Jesus' cross is treasured. So Jesus' cross is treasured. So the people, they, they, they don't just wallow in their sin, weeping for how awful they are, but they respond. They rejoice and rest in the grace that is theirs in, in the gospel. They run eagerly to God's throne of mercy and grace, and they run to Jesus who eagerly is able to receive them in their sin. So Jesus' cross is treasured. Sixth, change takes place. So change takes place. You could even say repentance takes place. Like genuine repentance just means to turn around. So it's stop pursuing what you're pursuing and pursue something else. So there's an experience of the fruit of God's spirit. That's what they mean by change. The people, they don't leave the same way they entered in to, the, to this experience of God. And you can think back to the article earlier from the seminary professor. He says there is this extreme sense of peace among the students, of shalom. There was happiness and joy and worship and repentance. People are experiencing a real taste of revival. They, they cannot leave the same way they entered. And so they leave with the desire to walk out these good works that, God, that Ephesians 2 says God prepares for his people to walk in. So change actually takes place. And it begins to permeate the areas around it. Uh, and then lastly, there's authentic and powerful worship. Authentic and powerful worship. And by this, I do not mean some kind of over-manufactured, oftentimes highly produced, kind of uh, fog, fog machine experience. That's not what we're talking about here. That's one of the main reasons why people marveled at what was happening at Asbury, is the worship was so simple. It was just a, a couple of students going up with a guitar and maybe having some keys in the background, and then they would sing. Uh, I was listening to a, a, a guy who was at Asbury at the time, who's a, a student at the seminary. He said they actually had well-known worship pastors reach out to them, saying, hey, we want to come and lead worship for you guys. We want to serve you. And it said the professors and, and leaders at Asbury said, no, we don't want you to come. Or you can come and experience it, but you're not going to lead worship. Our students are going to do that. So they wanted that, that, that simple yet profound worship and powerful. So revival, I'm going to give you kind of a, a, a simple uh, synopsis of these seven points. Revival is a special encounter of God's presence and power through ordinary means. It is where people pray, believe the truth of God's word, see their sin exposed, respond to the gospel of grace, begin to experience the fruit of shalom in a distinct uh, palpable way, and in the presence and power of God is made manifest. So that's the first question. I know that was a lot. That was kind of like a theological overload of walking through what we mean by revival. But the second question is this. Why do we pray for it? So why has God's people for over 6,000 years, since the beginning, been praying for revival? And this point is not going to be super long. It's three simple points, three simple reasons uh, that why we should begin to do this. First, the first point is this. We are, we are prone to forget the gospel. So we are prone to forget the gospel. Uh, this quote won't be on the screen, but, but Pastor Scotty Smith, he's a retired pastor in Nashville. He says this. He says that until Jesus returns, our natural drift as the people of God will not be towards spiritual atrophy, but spiritual entropy or apathy. Uh, it's not going to be toward... Uh, it's not going to be towards self-serving uh, 
or it's going to be towards self-serving idolatry, not God-centered worship. Towards using God rather than serving God. Towards salvation by us, not salvation by grace. Towards, towards being coddled, not being changed. Toward protecting our tribe, not welcoming the nations. Toward, towards church as an ingrown club, not a missional community. That's what he says is our natural drift, even as God's people. It's towards those things. And because that's our natural drift, oftentimes God will send a revival to wake up his people, to reorient them back um, towards the things of God personally in you, personally, privately, but then also communally. And so as we follow Jesus, y'all have all experienced this. We often go through seasons of dry, maybe sluggish, or even unmotivated in our pursuit of Jesus and in our communion with him. That's just our bent as fallen human beings living in a broken world and in a culture that's trying to deform you spiritually rather than form you spiritually. That's just a natural response. So we pray for God in those seasons to revive us in real and authentic ways. Meet with us and as the psalmist prayed, revive us again spiritually. We're no different than Israel in the Old Testament. That's what the whole Old Testament's about is we're Israel we're the, t- we're the people who often forget God, who forsake him, who run other ways rather than to him. And we need him to draw us back. Revive us again spiritually. So that's the first point. So the second reason why is because we long to see the gospel multiply. So we pray for revival because we long to see the gospel multiply. We want to agree with Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.14 where he says he longs for the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That should be a genuine Christian desire. We long for the lost to treasure and know Jesus. We want to see the campuses around us reached with the gospel where people who are lost, broken, in need of grace find life. Sometimes a revival is what God uses to begin a great work, a great work of gospel expansion. Just think about our own country. The first great awakenings that happened in the first half of the 18th century, so the 1700s, um, in the midst of the 1700s, in some colonies where the people were mostly either deists, so they believed that God created, but then he kind of stepped away. But God, he didn't actually commune with his people. God didn't want to know his people personally. God was like a clockmaker in heaven. That's what they believed. Or they were practicing universalists would say, oh, all, there is no such thing as hell. God, all people go to heaven. Um, that's the type of nation America was in the early 1700s. And then God used a simple proclamation of the gospel and prayer to transform a nation. Transform a nation that right before its its battle for independence, that ultimately led to a growing discontentment with even slavery and led to the abolitionist movement later on. The the first great awakening did that. So um, oftentimes revival is what God uses to expand the gospel in a, a catalytic, a fast way. So that's the second reason. And the last reason is we long to know and experience a glimpse of eternity. The truth is, Scripture makes it clear, we were created or God made us and has written eternity on our hearts. We are eternal beings. And revival is a place where heaven and earth meet in a profound, simple taste of what we can expect in eternity, in glory, It's like the veil gets thinner between heaven and earth and we can begin to see just a glimpse of heaven. And that's one of the reflections that I read from someone who went to Asbury this past week for themselves. People, there were people of different races, socioeconomic backgrounds, 
uh, theological denominations and leanings together, praying together, singing together, worshiping together, all in this tiny little worship space. It's just a taste of what's, gonna, what's to come. That's why we pray for revival. We long for a glimpse of eternity, and sometimes God gives us a little taste of it. But then my final question is this, is how do we, pre- how do we prepare for revival? How do we prepare for revival? And so tonight, it's been more of a theology of revival, um, which I hope is giving you more clarity, um, but also was meant to lead each of us personally to begin to pray, God, would you revive me in some distinct ways? We'd be praying for more of a palpable sense of God's presence in our life because revival isn't the end goal, but more love for and likeness to Jesus is. That's what we would be longing to do as a response. And so I have three simple points. Again, I stole these from Stacey Tafal. These aren't me. Uh, but she has these three simple steps to prepare. And here they are. You'll see them on the screen. Uh, plow deep, pray hard, wait for rain. So plow deep, pray hard, wait for rain. So plow deep. Do the hard work of preparing the soil of your heart to receive more of Jesus' presence and power. Cultivate your own soul. Do the hard work. Take seriously your walk with Jesus and knowing him more. That's what we mean by, by plow deep. Begin to do whatever you must to stir your affections for him. Take steps of deepening faith. Spend time in his word getting to know him more. Make big decisions to know Jesus more. In other words, just take seriously the work of spiritual formation. That's what plow deep means. Tend the soil. Take your discipleship to Jesus seriously. That's what we mean by plow deep. Secondly, pray hard. Pray hard. If there's anything you get from tonight's message, it would be this, that revival begins with and is sustained by prayer. And so begin to take seriously praying and asking God, making big prayers, big requests, asking God to reveal more of himself to you. Pray for your heart towards him to be enlarged, to be increased with a desire to love him, but also to obey him. That's what our passage tonight is in Psalm 85. It's a prayer of Israel. They would recite it in the temple, asking God to reveal himself in a new profound way. They would recount in verses 1 through 4 all that God did, bringing them out of Egypt, raising up the temple, putting David on the throne, and then they would ask God to do it again in a new profound way. So why can't we begin to pray the same prayer for us, our communities and our campus? So pray hard. And then lastly, wait for rain. Wait for rain. So if there's another thing you got from tonight's message, it's this. Authentic revival cannot be manufactured. And, that's this, and the reality is, is that's a simple truth just for our walks with Jesus. Uh, we have no power innately in ourselves to cultivate any spiritual fruit in us. If there's one thing you get from life with Jesus, it's that you have no power to transform yourself. Every aspect of our walks with Jesus and his spirit is an act of grace that we receive from him. It, it doesn't mean that we don't have a, a role that we play, but every, every growth, every step of maturation, every step of faith that you take is an act of grace that you respond to. And that leads to further steps of grace. That's why Jesus's and even the Bible's main illustration for the Christian life is, is the life of a farmer, 
Over and over you'll see this language. It wasn't just because the people of Jesus' time were agricultural. That's one of the reasons why Jesus used it. But I think also it's a, it's a deep illustration for the Christian life. What does a farmer do? They can plow and tend to the soil. They can plant seeds. And they can even water them. But they can't make the plant grow. They can't make this sprout. He must wait for rain. But not just rain. He has to wait for God to cause that seed to sprout. He can do everything right on his end. And, a, and the seed, won't, it may or may not sprout if, if, if there's no rain and God doesn't cause it to grow. That's our roles in our own spiritual life. We can do some things to cultivate in us, to prepare us for God to work, but we cannot manufacture it. And as Pastor G. Campbell Morgan, he's a man who actually lived through and experienced the great Welsh revival of 1904-1905. It's actually incredible. Uh, but this is what he says, and I think it'll help us understand this point. We cannot organize revival, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. We cannot make it happen, but we can set our sails to catch the wind if God mysteriously decides to blow it upon us. And that's what these spiritual rhythms, these spiritual practices are. They are setting your sail for God's spirit to blow. And so, um, will God not revive each of us? For the reason of Psalm 80, 85, 6, where he says, they say, revive us again. Here's the reason why, that we may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation so that we may rejoice in you. That's the desire. So that's why we pray and I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll have a little bit of time of reflection. But Father, I thank you for tonight, your word that, that's true, uh, that these jumbled thoughts, Lord, that you use them for your glory and for your purposes. Uh, God, as we move into a time of reflection, would you do the hard work of continuing to make us alive spiritually through, through um, the power of your spirit in us? So God, I pray for each and every student, wherever they are in their walk with you, God, maybe they need to be revived. Maybe they need to be made uh, awake, as R.D. preached about yesterday. Um, sometimes we need to be uh, woke up spiritually. And so God, would you do that in us for, for your glory, for your renown. In the name of Jesus, I pray and ask these things. Amen. And so I really just hope tonight as we move into a time of reflection that Aiden will lead us through a little bit of it. Um, I hope you at least leave with a better sense of what revival is and what it isn't. If anything, if there's like a bare minimum, that's where you would be. But I hope that you, you, you leave maybe challenged with your own, uh, the calling God has you to begin to uh, long for or pray for personally and even corporately uh, for this revival in you and in, your peop in God's people. Because ultimately we long to love and treasure Jesus more. Uh, and that you would think of those words of plow, plow deep, pray hard, and, uh, and wait for rain. And if we think about plowing deep, uh, I have a few simple things uh, that you can think about as we reflect. Plowing deep, it means making big decisions for Jesus. This might be the worst form conference pitch ever, but maybe that's what you need. Maybe you need a, a, a 48 hours away to get serious about your relationship with Jesus and your life with him. 
Sometimes God uses those weekends to stir up in us, reinvigorate us spiritually. Maybe God would use that weekend as a plowing deep moment for you. Or maybe he might just use it as simply as just another step to invite you into deeper intimacy with himself. And that would be enough. So that would be my first application. Secondly, maybe we just need to get more serious about praying and asking God for big prayers in our own personal walks with Jesus. Or maybe even corporately for our own city and campus. Uh, because UT, it doesn't need uh, more large college ministry gatherings. That's not what UT needs. What it needs is students who love Jesus and pray for UT. And they, they step out in faith and, and live boldly and missionally for Jesus. That's what we need if we want to see a movement of the Spirit happen there. So maybe that's what we need to pray for, big prayers. Uh, thirdly, maybe we need to be honest before God in these next few moments uh, with our spiritual lethar- lethargy or maybe our spiritual apathy towards God. Or maybe we just need to sit in these next few minutes as Abby prepared us beforehand and just confess areas of our life where we're not aligning with God's will. And we need to confess our sin and cling to the gospel as our source of grace and mercy because if there's anything you learn from, from life with Jesus that he's eager to bestow mercy and grace on those who come to him for it. Maybe you need God to revive your soul personally. Spend time praying that prayer. God longs to meet with you, but he says only if you will seek him. And then lastly, maybe uh, God may never bring what we would call revival to college life, uh, to Knoxville, to Fellowship, or even to UT or Johnson or some of these other universities. Maybe not in the visible, loud, profound ways. But maybe he'll do it in the silent, slow, and steady ways. Because that's oftentimes the way God works. So don't get discouraged if you pray and pray and pray for the big and loud and God responds in silence and slowness and steadiness. Because that's oftentimes the way that he works. And so take these few moments. Aiden will lead us in a a few moments um, as we pray together.